I started getting feedback that I was difficult. This is really interesting. Am I difficult or am I just a lot harder to manipulate? And so what I started seeing is these leaders that I had put on a pedestal and emulated and tried to do everything I could to please, right, and do a good job, weren't actually invested in my success, right? And so I was loyal to these organizations when in reality, I could be committed to doing a good job, but I needed to be loyal to myself. And if someone else couldn't handle that, it wasn't the right place for me. Mi gente, dímelo, dímelo, what's good? Welcome to another episode of the Quintuera's podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know, it's your boy Pavel bringing you another very special episode with another very special guest. Now, before I tell you more about this week's special guest, let me give you a quick reminder on what this show is all about. On this show, our mission is to redefine professionalism because I believe when we go to work, most of us are faking it and I know it's holding us back from doing our best. So every week, we have a different guest join us for a very candid conversation around the conflict that they have experienced around professionalism versus authenticity. Speaking of guests, the clip in the intro that you just heard is with this week's guest, the homie Francesca. Before getting into the full episode, let me give you a quick little bio so you have more context going into the conversation. These days, Francesca serves as the President and Chief Possibilities Officer of HPGM, aka Hispanic Professionals of Greater Milwaukee. She was appointed in April 2021, where she quickly became an advocate and connector and has led the organization to record growth in memberships, philanthropic gifts, and revenue during the most challenging times with a global landscape. She's a trailblazer who's known for her advocacy of others, and she's been recognized by various organizations. In 2021, Madison 365 named her Wisconsin's 36 most influential Latino leaders as both a 40 under 40 winner and as a power broker and executive to watch by Milwaukee Business Journal in 2022 and by Biz Times named her 2023 notable BIPOC executive. Fun fact, my first in-person speaking engagement that I've ever been flown out for was for HPGM. So let's just say me and Francesca go way back to a couple years ago. <laughs> anyway, she's a dope individual that I've wanted to have on the show for a minute. So I'm honored to have her on the show. To get Francesca's full bio, please be sure to check out the show notes of this week's episode. Now that you have a little bit more context into who today's guest is, let's be sure to check out this week's episode. Well, all right, let's start off with the word authenticity, right? I ask everybody, what does it mean to them? So when you hear the word, such a buzzword, what does it mean to you? To me, it feels, I'll tell you what it feels like. Okay. It feels like lightness. Lightness? Like you are not, you don't have that, I talk about it a lot, like a backpack of all the things that you're carrying, holding down, masking, you just feel light. And to me, that's what authenticity feels like. You don't actually have to think about it. Oh, I love that visual. So growing up, do you think you had a backpack on? It's in some spaces, yes. And I okay. think that that's even the backpack in and of itself is in which spaces, is it okay? And it's kind of like the first time you like touch something that's hot, you're like, oh, okay, that hurts. So then you start to learn and adapt. And in certain places, I could be the little Peruana girl and 
you know, be dancing marinera and, you know, whatever. And I was totally authentic, but in other spaces it was picking up on, oh, I am literally the only brown girl in my entire class. Or, oh, so-and-so's, I am the only one with a single mom. I'm the only one with an immigrant mom. Like, you start to pick up on those things and how people react to those things and treat you. So there are certain things you picked up visually, right? But it sounds like there are other times where people let you know that you're the only one. Yeah. Like, when did you start realizing some of those things? It was when I was really young. I think this has been a lifelong journey. And I think being in this environment and talking to more people about it, too, I know that it's not only me, mm -hmm. that it really does start when you're really little. Oh, yeah. Right? From hearing people tell your mom, you need to speak English here, to my mom sitting by herself at sporting events with all the other parents were with each other. It was honestly since I was really little. So you would have sporting events, your mom would come to support, and you just see the separation. Right. There would be laughing, teasing, like my mom immigrated here from Peru. She was doing her best to support her child when she could be there, which was not always. So that was another thing, right? Sometimes I was the only one without support there because my mom had to work, sometimes multiple jobs. Yeah. But it was really this, just this feeling of not belonging, but also even though we were different, there was also a feeling of you're not like us and we're gonna make you feel like you don't belong here. How did you feel like you didn't belong? Like you said people made you feel like you didn't belong? Absolutely, I, I think it was just the different lifestyle. You know, like I said, being the daughter of an immigrant, a single mom, growing up in a violent household with a really unstable father figure just made my life so much more complex and complicated. And I started to slowly but surely not even talk about my home life, not bring people by because I, then it was like, oh, I got to explain or I got to be worried about what people are going to say about me then at school. Like I already had all those different factors. It didn't need to be one more thing. Yeah. I remember in middle school, so I grew up in the projects, right? And I remember vividly, you know, middle school, it's like science projects. You do teamwork and you're like, mm -hmm. well, one week I'm gonna go to your house. Well, next week I'm gonna go to their house. And I remember me walking like 10 blocks from like the school to my apartment with like one of my best friends growing up. And I felt the need to lie to him and say, oh, this is temporary. I'm not gonna live here forever. Like we're actually thinking of moving to this place. And it was just like a nicer building right next door. And he even questioned me, he was like, wait, so you're trying to move one block away? Like it made no, the story made no sense, but I felt the need to like somehow say that like this terrible looking building and environment, like I felt the need to tell him like, oh, this is only temporary. Like I was ashamed of like where I live. And did he ever ask or did you just no, profit I just, yourself? Yeah, I just did it myself. So that's that self-talk, right? Yeah. Of going into those situations already anxious, yeah. already maybe embarrassed, ashamed, right? Yeah. I was the only kid who lived in an apartment or in a condo or didn't have that, you know, a big house or my own room. Interesting. Oh my God, I didn't have my own room either. I didn't have my own room until I went to college. I, we were very lucky at some point, gosh, actually it was 2008, which was, you know, didn't turn out to be the greatest thing later, but my mom bought a house and I had my own room for the first time when I was 15. Wow, and yeah. And yeah, that was 
definitely those memories burned into just how I started to look at the world, too. So a lot of people in those scenarios, they maybe, you know, receive some pushback for who they are and they try their best to start fitting it. Like, is that what you started doing? 100%. It was... It's natural, by the way, right? Like, right. we all just want to fit want, in. We want to feel that acceptance. Right. And I think starting from a very young age, looking outwardly for that acceptance, validation, love, you know, all those things from other people, that habit started really young. And it also starts with what you look like. Yeah. What you bring for lunch. You know, like, well, those are all the things. I was the one with arroz con pollo in my thermos <laughs> and everyone else had Lunchables. Like, it's Lunchable. little things like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. now I'm like, thank God I had arroz yeah, con seriously, pollo. seriously, yeah. Yeah. So what was the moment when you were like, no more arroz con pollo? I didn't really have a choice. So that wasn't really an option for me. It was, this is what we have to eat. So this is what you're going to eat. But it was starting to hide it. Maybe I wasn't eating at the table with everybody or maybe I wasn't I was getting I was keeping myself busy maybe I was doing things with teachers at lunch and eating somewhere else or um, even saving up money to trade people so that I felt like I had something wow. other kids could relate to yeah I didn't honestly think much about this until I started listening to your podcast so much to unpack about the behaviors that we develop when we're yeah. young, when we don't even really think about it. Mm -mm. We just want to belong. Of course. But we do so much of that to the point where we're just like, whoa, like, who am I now? You know what I mean? Like, it starts with that con pollo and then translate, you know, it just continues to build up and build up. So, like, what are some other things that you started to maybe, like, try to hide? I think a lot of what I tried to hide was a combination of my cultural identity and Ooh, tell me, just tell my, me more about my that. home life. Tell me more about that. You decided to... Not talk about it. Not, not, let's talk about it, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, there over the last, you know, couple decades, there's also been a lot of challenges in our country around immigration. So I yeah. didn't necessarily want to open up the conversation about my mom. And even though she was a citizen, you know, she came to the country in about a year before I was born and, you know, got her citizenship, did all those things, yet teenagers can be really cruel. Yeah. And so I already saw what people were saying, whether it was about her accent or, you know, being a single mom. That's a whole other can of worms. So there were these really complex issues that as a 15, 16, 17 year old, I didn't know how to navigate them. So yeah. it was purely shoving it down and avoiding. Did a part of you as much as, as as supportive as she seemed to be when she could going to like your games and all these kind of things was a part of you like not wanting her to be there because you were ashamed? Because I thought about this the other day, like growing up, my family would beg me to come to my basketball games and I would always tell them no. And part of me it's interesting because I think growing up, I had performance anxiety. Mm. Like, yeah, I'm telling you, if, if a girlfriend came to watch me play, if my family came to watch me play, it would be the worst game of my life. Zero buckets? Zero buckets. As a matter of fact, if you follow basketball, there was just one game where I traveled so much during the game <laughs> that the announcer called me travel agent. Oh, my God. That was my nickname. Pobrecito. <laughs> 
it was so bad. All right, so like, yes, I had performance anxiety, but I haven't like explored this journal entry wise. And, and this is something that I need to explore. I wonder if part of me was also like ashamed for my family dynamic. I grew up with a single mom. Maybe I was comparing myself to people who had fathers and mothers there. Like, I don't know. I, I just, I, I do think that there, for me at least, I think there was probably some sort of aspect of like, maybe I don't want them to be there because of some other reason besides performance anxiety. For me, it's just something that, that I've been exploring. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting because when I do reflect back on that, I don't think that ever crossed my mind because on the other side of it, because I grew up with a single mom, she came here to this country with her two sisters. I was always really surrounded by strong Latinas. Yeah, same. So it was also this strong sense of self, even though in many other ways I was very insecure. Mm. There was this part of me that it was so proud and took it to the extreme maybe. Like if I heard somebody at that age saying something about my mom or my family, I'd be like, yo, let's take this outside. Really? Like that is the kind of attitude that, because I didn't know how to defend myself yet with words. So I would just get really angry. And I also would then that was my defense mechanism, right? So then I started to get labeled as the angry Latina, right? The fiery, the this, you know? And so wow. I kind of felt like I could never win being quiet. So I'm just gonna be that person that everyone else has already labeled me as. So you embraced that, wow. I would have never guessed. So, all right, so growing up, did you like, you're probably also, as you're getting to know yourself, you're also thinking like, what the hell am I gonna do with my life career-wise, right? And early on, I think we take from just representation that we see in the world, right? Whether it's, you know, aunts, parental figures, friends, families, like, what did you see for yourself? Like, what did you wanna go into? So in fifth grade, I had a teacher, Mr. Lanzini, who had us do this project. Okay. And it was to pick a career the city we wanted to live in, the car we wanted to drive. He oh. really had us do this project, but it had to be realistic. So you couldn't say, you know, I was going to go make $30,000 a year and be driving a Porsche, right? <laughs> sure. You had to like make it real. And I remember asking him if he would sit with me because I didn't know what careers were. And I actually like get a little emotional thinking about it. Of course I knew what a doctor was and like these things, but when I did an inventory in my life, nobody really other than my godfather who was in the military and you know worked for like public works had a career. So he sat with me and you know we started talking and at a very young age I knew that there was something inside me, kind of like that being an older sister, the firstborn, la primogenita, that I really was passionate about protecting people and defending people. And so I picked a lawyer. Mm. And from that moment, it was, I want to be a lawyer. This is how much money I want to make because I know that's safety. I would hear my mom talking about, not to me, but talking about maybe not being able to pay the bills mm. if my biological father didn't pay child support. So for me, that was important, right? Yeah. I was going to drive a black Lexus. <laughs> it had to be black, too. It had to be black. Because <laughs> that was like what, you know, I pictured a yeah, lawyer yeah. doing. And for a really long time, like through the time that I applied for my undergrad for college, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. That is fascinating. But I'm starting to even see the connections between your childhood 
even like that protectiveness of other people, like maybe you also wanted some protection as well. A hundred percent. I have gone through a lot of therapy and I've done a lot of work on myself and even, you know, with my mom and my family, my sister, my older, my younger sister, to get to a place where I could reconcile both the feelings of hurt and harm and not being protected and not getting what I needed as a child and saying, being in a place now where I can say, I know that my mom did the best she could yeah. with what she had. Yeah. Yet that is still, you know, today at 33, which I'm sure you can. I'm 33 too. Yeah. You can appreciate it's evolving. Like at mm -hmm. 33, I'm still working to make sure that eventually one day if I have kids, I'm not working my out on my kids. Right. Yeah. 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 Do, do you think so? Like even the financial aspect, like, is that a conversation that your mom was like, hey, you need to make X amount of money to like help us out? Or did you just put that pressure on yourself? So what I saw from my mom was she would always find a way to make it work. What I didn't know was it wasn't always through the healthiest financial habits. Okay. So then my focus became, you know, I had a, my biological father over here who had you know, filed for bankruptcy multiple times, who just had a lot of issues here. And over here, I had, I never, I always had everything I needed, not necessarily the fanciest things, right? But sure. we had a house, we had food, you know, sometimes it was lentejas and arroz, <laughs> but you know, it was something. <laughs> yeah. And so that, I think for me, what it really came down to was what kind of lifestyle could I have so that I feel comfortable so I don't have to think about those things. Mm-hmm. And so that I feel like my mom coming here, the sacrifices she made, both as an immigrant and as a survivor of domestic violence, that was worth it. And I put then my pressure on me. Yeah. This is what that looks like. Yeah. I think most often it's like that, though. Like, most often it's us putting the pressure on ourselves. Like, I forget that saying. It's like, I didn't come this far just to come this far, something mm -hmm. like that. And wow that was so powerful it's like you almost you said you wanted to make the sacrifices worth it yeah like somehow yeah. i needed to prove that i was worthy of all those things that's a heavy backpack it is a heavy backpack and i will say that it was in 2017 i was asked to speak at a gala for the Marquette College of Nursing to talk about my experience as a survivor of domestic violence. I'd never told my story publicly before. There were some things I hadn't even told my mom before. And Wait, you yourself was a survivor as well as yes. your mom? Sorry to hear that. So as a child, and there were some things I shared that night that I hadn't even shared with her before. And I walked off the stage and she was standing there and she, she just, was there. She was there. And she just hugged me and she whispered in my ear, Oh my God, Ifa, I'm a survivor. Like she had never put that together. In her mind, it was where life is hard, we're getting through. But to hear those things, and the reason I say that is because it was after that that she and I were able to open up a dialogue about why she came here. 
she came here, she told me so that I could have choices because she didn't have choices. Mm -hmm. Now that is a very different backpack than you need to be the CEO and make a million dollars a year and whatever else. You know, you know, it's a fascinating question. I asked my mom the other day, mom, what was your wildest dreams for me? And it's fascinating because like we put all this pressure on ourselves, like we got to make X amount, the black Lexus, all these sort of things, right? And for her, she was just like, I just wanted you to graduate college. And then like, I just wanted you to find a career that like you found fun. I was like, that's it? Just graduate college, find a job? She's like, yeah. Maybe it'd be like, be happy. Yeah, yeah. but like it, 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 was, it was so simple. And it's interesting, I've had similar conversations with my mom about, not about um, d- domestic violence, but, but more so about her inability to recognize certain experiences. For example, like, if I've experienced microaggressions and racism and sexism, all those things, I'm like, mom, you tell me you've never experienced that? She's like, no, he'll never. But she equates it to being like, it's just part of life. It's just part of the job. And like, oh no, I'm like, mom, like my mom has an accent, like all of these sort of things. I mean, she's 70. Like if it's 2023 and I'm getting these, you have had to have it, but I, but it's that like, inability to recognize the experience, but also recognize the pain that she probably went through. And it's, I believe also this threshold that many immigrants set for themselves as survival. Yeah. Like that's the bar. Yeah. And so anything that doesn't kill me, yeah, I don't even really have time or mental space to like label it or recognize it, right? Yeah. Cause I'm here, I'm alive, you know, my kids are doing well. Yeah. So that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of survival, I think often our family tries to give us like career advice, but it's often just like survival tactics. Like going into your career when you started working, like what was some advice that you think your family gave you? You were just like looking back at it, you were like, that makes no sense. Oh my gosh. <laughs> There's probably so much. I, I think it was probably honestly around what I needed to do in order to be successful and it was interesting that your mom you know talked about graduating college and finding a job when you think about your wildest dreams or the possibilities that could exist for you they're immense oh yeah right so some of it I think was almost what didn't make sense was the limiting of what is possible for me yeah yeah Well, what do you, so people share that limit? Like, what do you think the limit was that people put for you? I mean, I think the limit was, yeah, you should go get your undergrad, go to law school, be a lawyer, make a lot of money, like make a a difference, you know, help people. Instead of now, when I think about what's possible, I'm like, why wouldn't, why wasn't someone saying you should be a senator or you should be a president, you should reshape policy, You, you know, those, it's thinking much bigger. Yeah. And it. I think it really does come down to number one in the Latino community. A lot of times it is about stability, safety, keep your head down, work hard. And if you work hard, these things will come to you. Right. When you really get out in the work world and you're like, it literally doesn't matter. You could be the biggest idiot and you could still be the president of a company. You know, what's crazy is that it's not even that our families aren't risk takers because they risk so much to get here. Right. But it's once they get here. They don't want to lose or, you know, right. squander that somehow. Right. And they did all that so that we don't have to take the risks. This is the idea, the theory. Right. Um, so when you started working, 
think about like your early, maybe your first corporate job. Like, what did your swag look like? How did you dress up? <laughs> Bob, all I wish, I'm gonna send you a picture. I wore pantyhose to my first job interview. <laughs> I sure did. Okay. Because I thought that was like what you were supposed to do. <laughs> I wore pantyhose and black pumps and this dress that I got from the loft. Like, okay, okay. 22 years old, okay. looking like a abuela straight up. <laughs> but that's what I thought I was supposed to do. Why did, why did you think that? Because you look at the people that are successful. Uh, sure, sure. And, you know, that's what they be wearing. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's. I don't even know where I got those pantyhose from. I might have got them from my mom. <laughs> okay, so it's, a, it's an interesting exercise of comparison as well, right? Because early in middle school or like childhood, we walk in, we see what people are doing, we try to fit in, right? We wanna belong. I wanted that limited two shirt. Like that was how you knew you fit in. The limited two? Oh my gosh. We'll What's talk that? later about the limited two. Oh, it's kind of like the Abercrombie for little girls. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, but at work we often do the same thing too. Like we just want to be accepted. And was it like childhood where you looked around and you were kind of like the only one? For sure. So I in my first corporate job, my first job out of college. It was the first job I interviewed for. It was the first job offer that I got. Ooh, I took it. Congrats. Did That's not, amazing. Well, I was making $24,000 a year. Yep. <laughs> so I was coming out of, you know, having my undergrad degree, but I just knew that the expectation was get a job. Right. So I did that and it was a sure thing. And then I was on, it was in professional sports and I was one of two women on my team. And I was so excited. But then by like the third week, the other woman quit. So then it was just me and a bunch of guys. Okay. Primarily all white guys. Our manager was a white man. Almost every other leader in the organization was a older white man. Sure. And so when I'm looking around, you're kind of assessing at that point, are my differences going to help me or hurt me? And I think growing up in... The That's household fascinating that, I grew that up in. early on you were already doing oh, that. Right away. I was in a sales role too. So what I was going to share was growing up in a household where you have somebody who is emotionally volatile, you learn to read people, you learn to anticipate needs, which can serve you really well in many ways as a leader, but can also make it so that behavior of looking for every, to everyone else for validation and support and all the things is just magnified by a million, right? Because you know, or you start to believe that other people are the authority on your own worth. Yeah. So with that mindset of putting these authority figures maybe on a pedestal, like what sort of impact did that start having on your career? Or how you showed up, rather. I know for a fact that it prevented me from being as great as I could have been. Mm. I was still successful. You know, I, I still was good at my job. But again, it's like if you're walking through life with a 100-pound backpack on, it's going to be really hard to yeah. go far or go fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like what parts of you do you think you were hiding in like your early career? 
that was holding you back from doing your best work? I was such a private person to the point that no one really knew anything about my personal life. So like, how was your weekend? You were just like, laundry. Good. How about you? Yeah. Because it's complicated and mm. it's nuanced and, and I didn't want to say the wrong thing or be into the wrong thing that then was going to give people an impression that I didn't want. I wanted to say everything that I thought they wanted me to say. That was what I was most concerned about. Damn. So you, you were essentially like studying your coworkers to figure out like what were they into and then try to reciprocate whatever that was. It was coworkers, but it was also leadership because I'm also a very competitive person. I've also was groomed as a child to be the best. Mm -hmm. Like a B means you failed. Always, it must be an A yeah. because there was criticism, there was shaming. So for me, it was more about, I need to do everything I need to do in order to be the best and number one, which means I have to work twice as hard to get that answer before everybody else. Yeah. I'm fascinated by this. It's so funny because my mom, thankfully, was like so happy with bees. <laughs> she was so I was not the best student. Yeah, I was not the best student. Till this day, she swears I was like a really good student. I was like, yeah. I'm sure you were. I'll, 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 let you, I'll let you live that, mom. So you were saying you started emulating like the leadership and your coworkers. Right. And just almost being so much of a sponge and trying to understand everything about them so that I could learn to anticipate what they thought or what they needed or what they wanted me to be doing. Instead of even like being appear on a team right i was so worried about that what was your fear at that moment if like you said x they were gonna think why when you grow up as a people pleaser there is nothing worse than feeling like someone doesn't like you or you've disappointed someone like you always just try to fix it right instead of being confident and secure in nothing i can say about myself is wrong because it's me yeah you know? Yeah. So at what point did you start being a little bit more, let's say, authentic? At what point in your career? So in a previous role to the one I'm in now, there was an instance where my leader was, she was really proud about the team she had built, bringing more diversity onto the team. We had LGBTQ represent representation. I was Latina. We were all women, which is very different for this industry. And she shared with me feedback, which maybe shouldn't have, but that the executive leadership shared that I didn't count as diversity because I wasn't brown enough. So my entire identity, everything that I brought to the table boiled down to this statement. And I remember in that moment, committing to myself, whatever I do next, the most important thing is that I take off that damn backpack because even doing everything I had done for the whole, you know, however many years in my career, that's still what people were saying about me. That you're not Latina, Enough. essentially. Yeah. How did that make you feel? For the first time, it made me feel almost so fatigued and tired by doing all of that, I just said, you know what? 
why am I trying to prove my Latinidad to anybody? It is who I am. I am both 100% American and 100% Peruvian because that's who I am. And I don't need anybody else to validate that for me anymore. Like I just got to a point where I was so tired. Yeah. I think it's a common, not that I think, it's actually a common theme in everyone's story. Like they do all of that work and not like their actual job. They do all the like signs until they reach a point of, let's call it burnout mm-hmm. or some sort of like mental health breakdown. And that's when they're just like, from yeah. now on, I'm going to start doing this. And at that point, what I've realized too, is that it's not like you show up a complete different person the next day. It's often in like waves. hundred percent. Like, you know, some people are like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my hair a little bit different today see if anyone says anything or like I'm gonna today I'm gonna wear a pink blazer versus a black blazer what was that first thing for you where you were just like I'm gonna start showing a little bit more of myself drop the pantyhose I'm assuming (laughs) oh the pantyhose (laughs) are long gone at that point thank god (laughs) it was honestly for me it was more speaking up Mm. and I had a feeling you were gonna say that and I will tell you that as soon as I started speaking up after a little while I started getting feedback that I was difficult. This is really interesting. Am I difficult or am I just a lot harder to manipulate? And so what I started seeing is these leaders that I had put on a pedestal and emulated and tried to do everything I could to please, right, and do a good job, weren't actually invested in my success, right? And so I was loyal to these organizations when in reality, I could be committed to doing a good job, but I needed to be loyal to myself And if someone else couldn't handle that, it wasn't the right place for me. Yes. And that is that the first time you've ever been labeled that? No, I would say it kind of got to that. I think a little bit in every role I was in, like I would maybe get to a little place where I would feel like, okay, I'm going to. Right. I'm going to speak up or I'm going to do this. or I'm going to wear my hoops and my red lipstick and like see what everybody's, you know. And it was just at this point, I was in a leadership position that gave me a little bit more authority to stand in that and to give others permission on my team to stand in that. And that's when it was like, whoa. And when you say speak up, like, give me an example. Like you'd be in meetings and there was an opportunity to contribute and you were just like that, right? Like you just didn't say anything? Yeah, or even just in your mind, like, is that a good idea? Should I share that? So then I started sharing that and then someone would interrupt me. And then I would say, excuse me, I would like to finish my thought. That's not disrespectful, but it was all of a sudden assertive in a way that I was no longer afraid of what other people would think. Mm -hmm. I was more focused on, I can't live with myself anymore like this, feeling like this inside, and I need to honor that because I got to live with me every day. Yeah. Oh. That is, that's like the mental gymnastics that we all go through. And it, I'm just like visually just like imagining like a conference room and you just like standing up for yourself. Like it's such a, yeah, it's such a powerful moment for you. And being the youngest person on the executive team and the newest person on the executive team, right? There's all these layers, but I think what I really came to realize was if I don't do this for myself, this then starts to spill out into your personal life. And I really started to ask myself the question, who am I? 
like wor this work mentality had taken over so much that I had just lost so much of who I was as a person. And my relationships started to suffer, my health started to suffer. So it was truly that point of something needs to change. What are, what are some other ways you think you started to show your authenticity besides speaking up? I mean, it seems simple, but really in the way that I dress. <laughs> no <know>. more pantyhose. <laughs> no, well, no more pantyhose <laughs> for sure. But just not trying to overthink it mm. and just do what feels good, right? Mm -hmm. To be more in flow. Because I think there, that mental load of the overthinking all the time was just taking such a toll on me. So I'm like, there's nothing unprofessional about sneakers. Right, right. And there's nothing unprofessional about a tank top. Sure. I don't need to, if I want to wear a suit, great. But I want to be the one to decide. Yes. When I want to wear a suit. How do you think that has been received? I think it's been really liberating for a lot of people, especially in my role, where we have a, you know, a membership organization of thousands of Latinos who work you know, in the public sector, in the private sector, in nonprofit, who are like, oh, the president of that organization comes to an event in Air Force Ones? Okay, I'm going to do this. And actually, I have to give you your flowers because after your session with our HPGM folks, I have had countless people tell me that liberated them from the oppression that they put on themselves they're wearing their hair natural, they're changing the way they're talking, they're changing the way they're dressing to be in line with who they are because it, you gave them that permission. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it, it's such a fascinating like, point of the conversation as well because I think we often talk about the resistance that we get for authenticity, but it's really important to call out the messages of permission that you're getting from other people like the appreciation like that must be validating for you absolutely to know that we can absolutely it's within our power to shift mindsets to shift expectations now when we have events and people say hey what's the dress code i say <laughs> wear what makes you feel powerful 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 and some days for me, that might be a suit. Other days, it might be jeans. Yeah. And other days, it might be something else. But that shouldn't be the reason that overthinking or that costume that you put on shouldn't be the reason that you can't show up as your wonderful self. I love that. And you know what's funny? For speaking engagements, I'm going to start using that. Because oftentimes, like, business casual, I love that idea of, like, the dress code should be wear whatever makes you feel powerful. I love that. All right, well, you may have already answered this, but last question. You've received resistance. The higher you go up in any organization, the more present and public you're going to be. You're taking on opportunities that are very visible. There may be more pressure to, like, go back to that assimilation, Right. But what's the one thing that continues to inspire you and empower you to continue being your most authentic self in these spaces? I think the thing that continues to inspire me is 
There is literally not a week that goes by that we don't hear some sort of feedback about how HPGM in Milwaukee is shifting and redefining professionalism. So to think about thousands of people taking off their backpacks and then what that does for their families and the generational impact, of, that's beautiful. And I will also add that being able to use different parts of who I am, right, outside of HPGM, to stand in that so firmly that there is no going back, I think that accountability, right, to whether it's my sister Gabriella, who's my very best friend, to say, hey, I noticed that something was happening here. Like, what's going on for you, right? To have those people in your life that know who you are at your core and can also kind of help pull you back if you yeah. start to get in that place. Mi gente, that wraps up another episode of the Cantuitas podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do us a favor. Like, share, comment. Wherever you're listening to this show, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or any other platform, please be sure to follow so that you're notified about any new episodes that we launch. Your engagement, your feedback is just going to help us in the algorithms to ensure that these experiences get heard by as many people as possible, because that's the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism. Thank you and see you next time.